if you would turn with me this morning to Psalm chapter 6, as we begin a a new sermon series, a seven-week series of looking at uh, the penitential psalms, the psalms of confession. We'll talk a little bit uh, here in a moment about what the psalms of confession are, their significance, and the history of the church. Uh, But today we begin in Psalm chapter 6. So I would encourage you to uh, turn there in your copy of God's Word uh, this morning as we begin uh, this series together. Uh, before we look at the text together and walk through the Word of God together, let's just um, stop again for just a moment and pray uh, and commit this time uh, to the Lord this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we Commit ourselves to you in these moments as your people, as your church, Lord. We are in desperate need of you. Lord, we thank you that you are not a far-off, distant God that we have to go searching for, but that you have come near to us, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen and have looked upon the glory of God in flesh. We thank you that your word is before us this morning, that we can sit before it and under its authority, knowing that it is sufficient for all of life and godliness. And so, Lord, we humble ourselves before you and you alone in these moments. Lord, help us to understand the truth of your word. Help us to respond appropriately to the reality of who you are as our God, as our Lord, as our Savior, and how we as your people come before you in prayer and confession to align ourselves each and every day to your will and who you would have us to be in Christ. So Lord, bless these moments, guard us from error, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable before you in this place this morning. Amen. Uh, Tomorrow is Reformation Day. And um, we, as Protestants, remember uh, the Reformation that took place uh, some 500 uh, years ago as a group of men led by the Spirit of God and the Word of God reformed the church away from a works-based salvation and a works-based type of religious system returned to the Word of God Uh, and brought about a reformation that is still needed in our day. Um, When we look back at the reformation, we celebrate not the men, we celebrate what Christ did in his church to return his people to the word of God. And the reality that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We celebrate this truth in this place this morning. Uh, tomorrow, though, we, we don't just celebrate or remember the Reformation as a whole. We commemorate the day that Martin Luther uh, went to the church at Wittenberg and nailed his 95 theses on the door of the church. There were many men who played an uh, integral role in the Protestant Reformation, but uh, historians will all agree that that moment when Luther made that stand was the spark uh, that lit the fire for the Protestant Reformation. 
For Luther, as he was serving as a monk under the umbrella of the Catholic Church in his day, before he came to faith in Christ, he had a dilemma that he was dealing with. As he studied the Word of God, he began to feel the weight of his depravity and his sinful state. And his problem was he was trying to address the issue of his sinfulness under a religious system that was all about works. And so Luther found himself being caught up in the buying and selling of indulgences, where the Catholic Church would say, if you gave to the church, you could buy your way into heaven. If you gave to the church, you could free your relatives out of purgatory, which is blasphemy. Luther was in such turmoil as a monk that one of his mentors sent him off to Rome to climb the holy stairs there in Rome, known as the Scala Sancta. Uh, They believe that Jesus himself descended down these stairs after he uh, was before Pilate, before he went to the cross. And the belief in that day was if you climbed the stairs on your knees, you could atone for your sins. Luther went to Rome, he made this journey, and he came back more in despair over the state of his wretched soul. This is fitting, though, for us to think about, Reformation Day being tomorrow, us entering into this series on confession, because another issue that Calvin, or, uh, Luther faced was confession. Uh, he felt a need to daily, multiple times, go before the confessor's box to confess his sin. He would go in the morning, confess his sins, he would be convicted of sins in the afternoon and go back again. He was seeking to find relief from the burden of sin on his, play, on his life in the confessor's box. Uh, Luther himself said one day he spent six hours confessing sins before uh, the confessor. Again, he was so burdened by this, he became physically ill, and it drove his confessor crazy. One day, uh, Luther was at the confessional, and uh, the priest said to him, Luther, stop this madness and just love God. Luther later on in his life would write about that moment and he would say this, I myself uh, was more than once driven to the very abyss of despair so that I wished I had never been created. Love God, I hated God. I share this because we see the burden of sin underneath a works-based religion bringing no hope to a desperate soul in need. Praise God, Luther one day would come to understand the truth of the gospel, would repent and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. And again, this is fitting for us because when we think of confession in our day, we tend to think of it in a Catholic church sort of sense, where we go before the priest to atone for our sins, adding to the cross of Christ. But we stand this morning and we declare that the cross of Christ is complete and it is finished. That we do not have to add to the atoning work of Christ by our works. And so for us this morning who are in Christ, confession is not a burden. It's not an obligation, but confession is a joy-filled act of the believer agreeing with God about what is good and right and pleasing to him. There is joy to be found in confession. 
I'm sure as you heard about the sermon series, Psalms of Confession, that maybe that sounds depressing or sad, but there is joy to be found this morning in confessing our sins before the Lord. In Psalms chapter 6, we're going to see that confidence in God produces confident prayer. I mentioned that we're going to be looking at the seven penitential psalms, the seven psalms of confession. The only reason that these seven psalms have been identified as such is because they were sung and read by the early church on Ash Wednesday. It was a tradition of the early church. And if you're familiar with Psalm chapter 6, and as we read through it here in a moment, you're going to notice that in the strictest sense, this is truly not a penitential psalm. Uh, There is no prayer of confession. There's no prayer of forgiveness. Uh, But we can consider it this morning in light of confession because we do learn some important things about God and prayer that ultimately apply to our prayers of confession. In Psalm chapter 6, we see that we are broken and in need of deliverance. And it is God alone who can intervene on our behalf. And the more that we know of the character of God and the attributes of God and how God interacts with his people, the more sure we will be in our prayers. And this impacts how we view our prayers of confession. Now, as we come to Psalms chapter 6, or Psalm chapter 6, we cannot know for sure what the setting is, what the contents is. Uh, the context is that drove David to write this psalm, but what we will find as we read this together this morning is David is suffering from deep anguish, and he wants the Lord to deliver him. I want us to do something. Uh, If you would stand with me, um, as was the tradition of the early church to read these seven psalms together, as we go through this sermon series, I want us to do the same. Uh, If I have put, we'll have the the translation I'm using, ESV, on the screen. Uh, But I want us to read this aloud together this morning. Uh, So I'll be reading from the ESV. Uh, If you're using a different translation, you can uh, follow along on the screen. Uh, But let's read this uh, together this morning, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me. And you can read along with me. Let's read together. We're going to read this together. Let's start again. Ready? One, two, three. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you, and Sheol, who will give you praise. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Amen. You may be seated. 
As we walk through this passage this morning, I want us to answer two questions. What is it that we learn about God from David's prayer? And then what is it in light of that that is it that we learn about prayer itself? So the first question we'll answer together, what do we learn about God from David's prayer? Four things. The first one is this, the Lord is gracious to heal. We primarily see this in verses one through three. Uh, David's first request that he makes is for the Lord not to be wrathful in his discipline. Uh, We know, according to scripture, that discipline is good for the believer. Uh, In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, it says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And so we know that the discipline of the Lord is good as our loving father, and David would have affirmed that. But what we sense here in verse 1 is that David feels that the Lord has been too harsh with him for too long. And so he asks there at the end of verse 3, how long? This is a prayer that we see throughout the Psalms and in other parts of Scripture, the prayer of how long, O Lord, where the believer questions the timing of God. Uh, if you were here on Wednesday night at our prayer meeting, I mentioned 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where Peter said this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. And what's kind of humorous about that verse is when he says some, he's talking about all of us. All of us at one point in our life have been in a moment where we have said, Lord, how much longer will you go until you answer my prayers? We've questioned the timing and, the, and the, the deliverance of the Lord. We've all been there. And as we come to this prayer and we see David praying this way, and we think about the early church repeating and reciting this prayer, this prayer being in the word of God, God gives us permission to pray in such a way. It is common for believers to come to a point where they ask the Lord, how long? As we pray such honest prayers, ultimately it serves as a reminder to us that God has not forgotten us. And he is indeed faithful to his promises. God's pace and timing through seasons of suffering, we affirm, is ultimately for our good and his glory. So we find freedom in prayer to be honest with the Lord. Why? Because we know that God alone is the one who can bring healing and deliverance to our seasons of anguish. And David himself is definitely in a season of anguish. Look at the words there in the text. He says, I am languishing. He is physically frail. He says there, my bones are troubled. Have you ever been in such an emotional state of agony that you felt physically weak? I know I have. I've gone through seasons of emotional suffering and trial where I physically feel weak. It is down to his soul, he says. He says, my soul is greatly troubled. This is reassuring for us this morning because David can relate to our sorrow. David can relate to our agony and our anguish in life. But ultimately, we know, according to Scripture, that Christ relates to our suffering. He understands our suffering and our trials. And as we pray, his Spirit intervenes on our behalf. 
and brings our prayers before the Father in ways that we cannot even begin to communicate with our own words. And so as David is going through this season of agony and pain and trial and suffering, he says to the Lord, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in languishing. And then he says, Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Both of these, wor- these verbs, be gracious and heal, are commands. David is commanding the Lord to intervene on his behalf. And we might think this is arrogant of David to tell the Lord what to do, but rather what we see in this is the confident boldness that David has when he comes before the throne of grace. He is confident in his prayers, so he prays as such. And this confidence rests in the fact that he knows that God alone is the one who can heal, and God delights in this type of prayer The second thing that we see here in Psalm chapter 6 is that the Lord delivers from death. We see this in verses 4 through 5. We mentioned the two commands in verse 2. Right away in verse uh, verse 4, we see three more commands. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, and save. All of these words are very similar similar in meaning, but what we can learn from this, again, is about the boldness that David has when he comes before the Lord. All three of these commands, turn, deliver, and save, are at the heart of prayer. Unless the Lord intervenes to change our standing, to change our position, we have no hope. And so he speaks here of death in verse 5. He is in such anguish that his mind has begun to play tricks on him that he feels that he is near death's door. One commentator said that David here is probably over-exaggerating the situation, but again, we can relate. We've been in moments in life where we feel like we're coming to the end. And when he talks about death here, David does something that the psalmists do throughout the psalms. First, he affirms that death is appointed by God. Secondly, he celebrates the life of the covenant community of the body of the church in his day, the nation of Israel, and he also affirms his understanding of the problem of death, that death is unnatural. It's come into the world because of sin. And so as he thinks about death, he's not questioning here in verse 5 whether death exists or that he's afraid of death. Rather, he sees and understands that in in his view that he still has a life to live for the glory of God. I think we see this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul prayed so famously. He said this, To me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your count. David senses that he still has work to be done in this life for the glory of God, and at the heart of his request for deliverance is a key aspect to our prayer, appealing to God for the sake of his glory based on the reality of his nature. You see it there in verse 4. Don't miss this. He says, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Two important things that we need to note here in this phrase. 
First is a really important word that we come to in the Old Testament, and that is the word that's translated here in my translation, steadfast love. This word in the Old Testament is used over 250 times. In the Hebrew, it is the word hesed. I want you to remember that. Steadfast love, it's a, it's a word that's hard to translate into the English. Uh, it speaks of the never-ceasing love of God, that his love for us is irrevocable. That if you are in the love of Christ this morning, there is nothing that can change that. We just read about that in Romans 8 this morning in the men's Sunday school class, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And as he talks about this, this truth of God, his steadfast love, his never-ceasing, irrevocable love, he prays in regards to that attribute, that nature, the character of God. He says to him, for the sake of your steadfast love. In other words, David is saying here, Lord, if this is true of you, if this is true of your nature, and I know that it is, act accordingly for your glory. Talk about boldness in your prayer, and yet again, this is the example that's set for us. We see many prayers like this in Exodus chapter 32, when the golden calf was built by the nation of Israel, and the Lord says he's going to wipe them off the face of the earth. Listen to Moses' prayer on behalf of the people as he implores the Lord based on his character and nature. Listen to Moses. He says, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing to the people. This is just one example of many in Scripture where the people of God pray to God and plead with him on behalf of his character and his nature to intervene on our behalf. Moses appeals to the nature of God. David appeals to the nature of God. And this type of boldness in our prayer is becoming more and more uncommon in our day. Because when we come before God in our prayer, we do not view him as the sovereign king of the universe, but we simply see him as a genie in a bottle that we rub a lamp when it's time for him to grant us three wishes. This is a lazy, weak view of God and a lazy, weak view of prayer. David's boldness in his prayer is grounded in the fact that God alone can save him from death. The third thing that we see here in Psalm 6 that we learn about God is that the Lord hears the prayers of the righteous. We primarily see this in verses 6 through 9. Uh, David goes on to talk about his emotional state of anguish. Uh, it says that he is weary and tired, so much so that he's weeping through the night. His, his pillow and his bed are soaked with the tears of his anguish. His body is failing him because of this deep sorrow. He is in tremendous grief. 
Now, what the grief is specifically, we do not know for certain. I think the context of Psalm chapter 6 tells us that it's grief from his enemies. We know that David was a man of war, and there were people who were always after him. We think of even King Saul trying to kill him. We know that David was grieved by his enemies. In Psalm chapter 9, verse 13, he said, See my affliction from those who hate me. Potentially, that's his grief. Maybe the grief he feels here that's causing him to weep through the night is grief from the trials that he faces. David faced many trials in his life. When his son Absalom died in 2 Samuel 18, David said this, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. You can sense the grief and anguish in his words. Potentially, though, David is grieving over his sin. Maybe the enemies that he speaks of here in Psalm chapter 6 is sin and temptation and Satan. We know that David would grieve over his sin. We see in Psalm 51, after Nathan the prophet comes to him and confronts him about his sin with Bathsheba, that David said this. He said, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Regardless of what the source of David's grief is, we sense the hope that he has in the Lord in verses 8 through 9. And we see it in these three things. First, he says, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Listen this morning, dear friend. The Lord knows your grief. He knows your sorrow, and he knows your hurt. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says of Jesus, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. God has come near to us. God knows of our hurts and our pains and our sorrow. But we also see here that God hears our prayers Verse 9, the Lord has heard my plea. We can sense here that not only does the Lord know, but he hears our prayers. David is weeping with grief. The Lord sees and knows. But then he brings his request before the Lord, and the Lord hears. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, when the Israelites are crying out for God to deliver them, the Lord says to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. God knows your hurts and he hears your prayers, but most importantly here, we see that the Lord answers our prayers. Look at the second part of verse 9. The Lord accepts my prayer. The next verse there in Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, the Lord says to Moses, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Praise God that he has come down to us, that he has come near to us to deliver us from our enemies, and we find hope and refuge in that this morning. The final thing that we see here about God in Psalm chapter 6 is that the Lord will avenge the righteous. We primarily see this in verse 10. Verses 1 through 7, we see a lament and sorrowful uh, prayer, but then the tone changes in verses 8 through 10, and it, it rests in the fact that God will bring vengeance on his enemies. 
And this is good news for David because the enemies of David are the enemies of God. And not just because David sits on the throne of Israel, but because of all God's people stand at odds against the world and God's enemies. And so each of us this morning who are in Christ have to settle with the fact that the world hates us. Jesus said in Matthew 10, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. John chapter 15, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And yet, the hope for the believer this morning is that God will have his day of vengeance. Deuteronomy 32:43 says this, Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. Psalm 58, 10, The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Did you catch the word there that you saw twice in those verses? Rejoice. There is a sense of rejoicing in the life of believer when we know that the enemies of God and those who oppose us will one day stand before the Lord. One commentator that I read in speaking of this said, Confidence springs up from conditions changed by the Lord and does not result from a mere psychological lift or personal effort. In other words, the transition from verses 1 through 7 to verses 8 through 9 is not that David just decided to pull himself up by his bootstraps and figure things out. No, the Lord has intervened on his behalf. The commentator goes on to say, when grace penetrates into the depth of an anguished soul, joy in the Lord anchors faith, which no one can remove. Are you in anguish this morning? Look to Christ. It's the message that we see here in this passage this morning. It is a grace of God that he will deliver us from our enemies. So we see these four things about God here in this passage this morning, but as we conclude, what do we learn about prayer? Four points of practical application as we close. First, It is good and pleasing to God when we are honest in our prayers. In so doing, we affirm our need for him to redeem our broken lives. In other words, just be honest before the Lord when you come to him in your prayers. Be honest about your needs and your concerns and how long, O Lord, type of prayers are good and right for us to pray. I think of a a child coming to their mother and saying, Mommy, I'm hungry. They do so because they need nourishment, and they know that, and in their honesty, they know that the only person who can provide that for them is their mom. Now, if you have preteens, you know that that cute little question or that phrase, Mommy, I'm hungry, turns into something more like, What are we having for dinner? A little more rude, a little more self serving. Probably needs to be corrected a little bit. Hey, you probably shouldn't talk to me like that. But at the heart of that question, that that request to the parent is a desire for them to meet a need that only they can meet. And they say it in honesty, and it's good. It's right and pleasing for us to come before the Lord in honesty. The second thing we learn here 
It is good and pleasing to God when we come to him in prayer with a confident boldness that is grounded in the truth of who he is. Again, we see David commanding the Lord, questioning the Lord on behalf of his his attributes and his character. We should pray with this same type of boldness. I read earlier Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Listen, though, to the following verse, verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 4. So verse 15, he said, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. As Christ came near, was tempted as we are. Verse 16, listen to what he says. Let us then with what? Confidence. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There should be a sense of urgency and passion and boldness in our prayers. As we pray for the lost and dying souls around us, that we would plead with the Lord to act on behalf of his grace and his mercy and his gospel to save lost and dying souls that we would plead with the Lord on on behalf of our children, that the Lord would deliver them from sin and guard them from the wickedness of the world. When's the last time you prayed such a prayer for your children? That we, like David, potentially, as he weeped in the night over his sin, that we too would grieve over our sin in such a way that we would come to the Lord and ask for him to deliver us in ways that we know that we cannot. The third thing we learn about prayer is that if we are living holy lives, we should expect God to do mighty things with our prayers. This is something that we see in James chapter 5, verse 16. In James chapter 5, James says this. He says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Listen to what he says. The prayer of a righteous person has great power at its working. Later in the Psalms, Psalm 34, verses 15 through 18, David goes on to say uh, these words. He says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Now, it's important here that we we note that we are in no way saying that if someone is in sin, that their prayers will go unheard before the Lord. That's not what we see here. That's not what we're saying. But we do see in Scripture that when we are living holy and righteous lives before the Lord, and we are not keeping sin hidden in our lives, and, and covering up sin, and living in unrepented sin in our lives, that the Lord will answer our prayers in extraordinary ways. So we strive for holiness in our lives. But finally, we learn about prayer, that it is right for us to place ourselves under the sovereign hand of God. David here in Psalm 6 is praying for vengeance from the Lord, and in so doing, uh, he is affirming that it is the Lord 
who brings about vengeance. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. He said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So as David prays for vengeance, he is submitting to the sovereign hand of God over his life. David could intervene on his own behalf and bring about his own vengeance, but he doesn't. He says, no, vengeance is the Lord. He prays that the Lord would bring vengeance. Listen to how Paul goes on to talk about this in verse 20 of Romans 12. He says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, what? Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is right for us in prayer to submit ourselves under the hand of a mighty, sovereign God, confessing to him that we cannot intervene on our behalf, but we need him to act in accordance to his nature to do so for us, to deliver us from sin and death. And so as we come to Psalm 6 this morning and we begin to think about confession and we primarily consider prayer this morning in a more general sense, we can apply these things that we talked about this morning to our prayers of confession. What have we said this morning? Well, know that God heals. Know that God delivers. Know that God hears. Know that God answers. And so how do we pray? Well, be honest in your prayers. Be bold in your prayers. Strive for holiness in your life, but ultimately submit to God's will. What is God's will for us this morning for those of us who are in Christ Jesus? It is that we would walk in righteousness and step with Christ. That we would turn away from the sinful passions of our former life. We talked about last week that we would not live as the Gentiles do, that we would not live like the world, but we would live as Christ lived in righteousness. We're being sanctified and becoming more and more like Christ in this life. One of the greatest tools that we have been given by the Lord to become more like Jesus is our prayers of confession. Not because we need to come to God in confession to add to the atoning work of the cross. It's not what we believe. We believe that at the cross, the, the debt was paid in full once and for all. And that if you are in Christ this morning, your sin, past, present, and future, has all been taken care of at the cross. And yet, as we consider our just state before a holy God, that we have the righteousness of Christ, we still struggle with sin each and every day. And there's an active role that we are to be taking in the Christian life to be killing sin and putting sin to death. And one of the first things we can do is simply become before the Lord and confess our sins to him. Each and every day. Not to earn his favor, not to add to the the atoning work of the cross of Christ, but simply to say in agreement to the Lord that I am a sinner. Lord, help me to align my life with Christ. 